Everybody calls me Dan, that being my name, but my complete name is Danny, and um, that's what I grew up being called. There's probably two or three people in Knoxville that, that call me Danny. Everybody else calls me Dan and have for a long time, off and on since I was a kid, I guess. But that song, Oh Danny Boy, I heard so many times growing up, you know, in an elementary school that was... It was kind of one of those songs that was revived during that era anyway. So I was just thinking, Robert, when you were playing how that song, I don't know, I didn't know the history of it until you shared that. And it's just really beautiful how that melody has been redeemed and given this, this fresh and beautiful meaning. And I think that's true in my life uh, that has happened for me spiritually and how that tracks. Anyway, that's probably just a a personal thing, but um, that's kind of cool. Kathy and I are kind of, you've probably noticed that we're a little bit on the wild side, and uh, sometimes we get really crazy on weekends, on Friday nights. It's not unusual for us to stay up 10 or 11 o'clock, and sometimes... If we're really edgy, uh, we'll make some decaf and we'll watch a documentary. We don't care. <laughs> we just we'll turn it up loud. Uh, we just live that kind of a fast-paced lifestyle, and we're not going to apologize or try to hide it. That's just who we are. So um, sometimes those are kind of crazy too. There was one. <laughs> if you want to doodle on your you know, handout right now, this would be a good a good moment. But it was, there's, I don't know if it's on Netflix or, you know, through your cable company or whatever. You could, you could probably find it if this just fascinates you. But the uh, 2010, 2010 Chicago Bears uh, football team presented this series of videos. <laughs> come on, come on. Um, I'm trying to think of a way to make this really exciting. It was just these amazing videos. And what it did, they followed the rookies first season uh, from, from their, the moment of arrival at the training camp all through preseason. And it's kind of, kind of cool what happened. I've seen one of these on baseball too because these guys, and I've talked to a couple of guys I know who've played pro ball, and, and they talk about how they try to act all cool, you know, and you see them and they're standing out there, you know, just being like, this is no big deal, it's just what I do. He said, inside your heart is beating, and they're just, they're people, and they said, you're just really nervous. So these, these rookies get at training camp, and uh, one video showed part of Coach uh, Lovey Smith's first orientation talk. You know, their first time rookie class, they're all there. They've just come out of university or wherever, and the biggest thing on their mind, of course, is whether they're going to make this team or not, whether they're going to become a p- permanent part uh, uh, this roster. So rookies know that, that the roster starts with uh, 80 players who come to camp. And after a few weeks, the, the coaches cut that team down to 53, no, excuse me, to, to about 65 players. And then from there, uh, before the season starts, NFL requires that that gets down to 53 players. So out of these 19 players who show up uh, for the rookie season, you know, at the beginning, they know that only seven are going to be around at the end of the day and make this team. 
So Lovey Smith knew that, and he knew how they're feeling, so when he addresses their concerns and he can kind of sense that, he uses that to kind of motivate them. And his challenge was uh, to them, make us put you on this team. In other words, play so well, perform in such a way that's head and shoulders above everybody else that we don't have a choice. We got to put you on this team. You're so good. You've earned that spot and we want you. That's the idea. Uh, you know, that we, we, we just, we couldn't dream of cutting somebody like you. So make us put you on the team. I got to thinking about that. You know, most religions and most people of the world think that God makes the same sort of speech about everybody and how to get to heaven. It's like God is saying, do you want to make the team? you really want to be on the roster for eternal life? <laughs> then make me put you on the team. Live such a good life and do so many good deeds and all of that that I just can't imagine rejecting you. Take the decision out of my hands. Just be that kind of person. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that it's just so vague. And you don't know. When do you get there? How do you know that you've, you've hit that balance, you know, between the bad things that you've done and the good things that you've done and who you are and how you present yourself? Because we all think of ourselves as a good person, right? Because when we do the comparison, I don't compare myself with Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, <laughs> No, I compare myself with you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I wouldn't point at anybody in particular. I know Kobe's thinking, me? Seriously? I'm so better than you. you know? But we, that's what we do. You know, I think, well, I'm not a criminal. I didn't do this. So I think I'm going to make it. Wow, that just feels incredibly risky to me. And the thing is, the in, the counterintuitive truth is that God works on a completely different basis than football coaches do. People who think they can perform so well that God's just got to take them into heaven. And when we hear of somebody dying, particularly if it's a celebrity or if it's a, you know, a famous person or somebody that we think is good, then we immediately think, well, of course they went to heaven. I mean, even all good dogs go to heaven, right? I mean, you know, it's just like we, we, can't, we, we think that. That's, the problem is it's just not the way it works. People who think they can perform so good that they're going to get on heaven's roster. That is the idea behind salvation by works and is totally incompatible and the opposite of salvation by grace. That God saves us just by grace and grace alone. And it really doesn't have anything to do with my works and how good I've been and, and all of that. It's through Jesus. This morning I want it because we're in the context of talking about loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And we've defined who our neighbor is and we've defined what that's actually talking about when we, when we talk about 
love and how that feels or what it looks like and how it's expressed in, in just real ordinary, everyday, practical, and sometimes amazing ways. And there's this illustration of, of, of this, of salvation and, and how it flows out of love and it's not about works that I wanted to use as, uh, as, a, as a ground, as a te- text, uh, the launching pad, whatever you want to say, as, as a place to look today to see what that's about. And it's a story. I mean, I'm real familiar with this because I've been hanging around churches. When Kevin did the Andre Kraut song a minute ago, Kathy and I were like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And we had an Andre Kraut song in our wedding. We left to one. I mean, that's, you're in, you're in our, our, you know, our uh, wheelhouse there. So... Uh, so I've been hearing this a long time. Maybe some of you have too. But I want you to see this through fresh eyes today. So when we read this, try to pretend like you've never read it before. You know, and just, just let it kind of wash over you. And so that it'll sound like something you've never read before, I'm going to read it in, in a foreign language. <laughs> I'm not really. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Okay, this is a story... Uh, you've heard it called the rich young ruler, although technically, we don't know, he wasn't like, like a ruler, but we, we, we say that, and it's even um, the heading, on my Bible says just the rich young man. It's in Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. You can just imagine Jesus taking a breath there and looking at the guy and saying, okay, if you would would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, "Uh, which ones? Could you be more specific? What are the the ones I, I should pay attention to the most? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Young men thought for a moment, he said, all of these I've kept, what what do I lack? Anything else? Does Does that do it? And Jesus said to him, If you'd be perfect, and the word perfect means complete or brought to maturity. It's the transition from infancy to childhood to adulthood. He said, if you're going to be all grown up about this, okay, let's put it into action. Go, and the guy never saw this part coming. Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He had great possessions. As he's walking away, Jesus turns back to the disciples and he says, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I'll tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, which means they were looking at each other going, what? 
saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them, and this is a word that means he studied. I mean, he locked in, and he just he, he, he focused intently on them, and, and he said, with man it's impossible. Nobody. But with God, all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, look, we've left everything and followed you. Are we missing anything? Is there something yet that we've, do we, uh, we kind of re, you know, echoing the, the same question. What do we got to do next? Now, the part that got my attention about this when I read this again and tried to see it, you know, like it's brand new, is uh, what, what is Jesus referring to when he says this is impossible? And this rich young man had just been unwilling to leave his possessions. He can't let go of all of his stuff and care for the poor and find that God is his treasure and follow this guy that he's obviously drawn to Jesus and there's a respect there for him and there's something intriguing about Jesus because he's asking him this question. And he's doing that in the context that all the other rich young rulers are despising Jesus. They don't like him. They, they're talking bad about him. You know, they go to the coffee shop. or you know, It's kind of like the political climate in the U.S. There's these two real distinct camps. And if you, you cross over and try to be friends here, it's like, oh, you shouldn't be talking about that. And don't let everybody know how you feel if you're over here, if you're really over here. And, and that's kind of what's going on here. But this guy, just he just steps up in front and he goes, hey, Jesus. I know my friends are listening, and I know they're watching me, and this is a little uncomfortable, but there's something about you that is so different and is so refreshing. I'm going to ask you this question, because I think you've got the answer. What do I have to do to make sure that I'm going to get to eternal life? How do I be saved? What's next? And when Jesus gives him the answer... I can't accept that. It's so outside of, it's just abstract to him. Jesus says, look how hard it is for a rich man to be converted into a follower of mine. He said, that's like, that's so hard. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And that was so common in that, that, I mean, everybody got that. You know, and I know what some of you heard. You've heard that story about oh, there's a hole in the wall of Jerusalem, and if you get down, you know, the camel would get down on its knees and crawl, then it could make it through, but it had to humble itself and all of that. I got to tell you, that's you know how there's urban legends and myths. Well, there's Christian ones too, and that's one of them. There's no hole. There's no wall. There's no. Okay, I know that hurts you for me because it was so pretty. I mean, it just preached so good, and you think, oh, that is so cool. I'm going to write that. I'm sorry, it's not true. Jesus was, what he was saying was exactly what it sounds like he was saying. A camel can't get through the eye of a needle. It's not just really, really hard for a camel to do it. No, he uses the word impossible. He wants to make sure that there's something so absurd that they're not going to misunderstand and think, oh, so you're saying there's a chance. You know, like, if it, like you really like a girl and she goes, there's one in a million chance that I would ever love you. Then you're telling me not to give up, right? Okay, I'm still going to give it a shot. No, no. 
He's saying there's zero in a million chance. It's not going to happen. It's impossible for you to save yourself. You can get down on your knees. You can do all that stuff. He goes, no. This is how hard it is. And disciples are just astonished. So they broadened the issue to include everybody. And it's almost like this is spontaneous questions that comes out of their, uh, this is like crazy. Well, then who can be saved? If you're saying that's going to, the person we respect the most and the best of the best among us, if, if it's impossible for them to be saved, uh-oh, what does that mean for me? What's going to happen? I'm not even in that league. Who can be saved? You see, Jesus, in essence, is saying the point I'm trying to make about this rich guy and all the other people, it's, it's just that it's true for everybody. This is not a problem with money. This is a problem with the human heart. So he makes this broad general statement with people, it's just impossible. I'm so glad there's that comma and there's that, what is that called, a conjunction? You know, there's this connector. Because he said conversion for everybody is humanly impossible. Come up with all your formulas, your tricks, your plans, and books, and all of that stuff. He goes, you know what? You're still not going to make it. Well, then who can be saved? And the answer, this is, this is audacious. This is, you know, just, you know, Jesus says, well, nobody. Unless... God intervenes and he does what is humanly impossible because he's not bound by our capabilities and competencies. He does something impossible. And he does it in such a completely different way. And he comes at this from an angle because what he's trying to do is to rock those folks that were listening to him and he's trying to rock you right now out of this idea that somehow you're going to make it because you were so good and because you worked so hard and you were so religious. That's not it at all. In Job chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, there's this conversation that's going on between Satan and God, and there's sort of this contest for Job's affection and attention. He's such a righteous man, and he's so... Uh, godly. And Satan makes this argument, which is pretty good. He goes, well, you know, this is not going to happen. I'm not getting anywhere. And obviously the reason is because you have built a hedge around Job. Unfair. You know, he says, you've bent the rules and there's this this contest and I'm a loser from the beginning because, well, no wonder you built a hedge around him. Now, the word hedge is a word, sukkoth, uh, which I know is amazing to you, right? Uh, and, and it does mean like a covering, uh, protection, a concealment, hiding somebody away. You know, our three-year-old grandson is all about hiding. You probably don't. Maybe you do remember when you first figured out hide-and-go-seek and how much fun that was. And there's something about the act of hiding and then revealing so he makes me lie down on the couch, and then he covers me up with blankets or an afghan, and then puts pillows on it. I'm cleverly disguised as part of the couch. And then, to make it even more authentic, he sits on me. And then he'll ask the question innocently, where's Dandy? 
I don't know. And I'm just right there. You wouldn't believe how many times it works. Everybody looks for me, and they look, and they can't find me. And we do it over and over and over, and it works every time. The 20th time, we can't find him. We don't know where he is. That's the word, but I want you to see something different. That word also means to weave or to intermingle. This is what I think Satan is saying because he recognizes what we need to see. He's saying, well, God, Job's life and your life are so woven together, so tight and so intermingled, I can't get to him without going through you. If I try to threaten him, if I try to attack you, that means I got to, I mean, Job, that means I got to take you on. And I know where that's going (laughs) to, how that's going to work out. You see, the concept, the idea is that our life becomes so one with Christ that it's not me living for Jesus and hoping I've done it well enough and that I'm good enough, I'm going to make it. No, it's me allowing Christ to come into my life and getting so mixed up and so intermingled and woven and my, my heart and my essence of who I am is so permeated with him, so inundated that you can't separate us anymore. You get it? He says, that's what makes it possible. So now that can be, I can be transferred to heaven. I can be saved. I can be, because it's him in me. That's my hope of salvation, not me for him. I know it sounds like it's almost the same thing, but it's radically different. And that's the concept. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. And that's what the rich young man didn't understand about salvation and what many people, I think, sitting in this room probably and absolutely in our culture and around the world don't get. He's trying to earn his salvation with good works and not really so much about love. In fact, he says, I've kept everything you just listed and what Jesus did is he took the second tablet of the law. You know, there's part of the law that, that talks about our relationship with God, and it's sort of the vertical laws. And then there are these other laws that talk about our relationship with each other and other people, and those are these horizontal laws. And that's what Jesus says. He says, let me just pick these out and just, just, let's just talk about the way you love people around you. And the guy is he's so self-assured, he's so cocky, and he says, you know, I've done, I've done, I've done that since I was a kid. I've been to Sunday school, I went to VBS, I was a part of this club and that team, and I went to Young Life, and, you know, I've been in youth group, and then I was, I was in th- this uh, Christian organization on campus. He said, I've, I've been doing that all, you know, what else? Is there something else? Did I miss something? Isn't it funny that we're always looking for one more thing to do? He recognized something in Jesus that was so different, but this thing of how we express love to one another, the, the man felt like, I, I've got that. I think I've done everything necessary. 
Jesus disagreed with the man's self-assessment. The sum of the laws was love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus lists these things, and he says, what I'm, what I'm trying to say by doing all of that is just love your neighbor as yourself. You got it? And who's our neighbor? We talked about this last week or, you know, before in this series. It's the person in front of you. That's your neighbor. He says, just love the next guy, the next woman, the next person. Just you see, the man didn't love so much as he was concerned about keeping the rules, and he could do that without engaging. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he says, now let me give you a practical way to take that next step. And in verse 21, he says, sell it all. Put it on Craigslist, put it on eBay, you know, throw it, just have a garage sale and get rid of everything you've got. Collect all of that and, you know, whatever you're left with at the end of the day, then distribute that among the poor people. Now you're finally freed up from all your possessions. Doesn't that feel good? I mean, your possessions have possessed you long enough. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut you free. Uh, You're loose from all of that. Whoa, that feels so good. Now, now you've got the liberty. Now God's your treasure. So let's go. Come with me. Follow me and these guys. Look at them. Look at this group of guys. You're going to be one of us now. It's like, what? sell my camels and I've got some really cool camels and they're pretty fast and I've got this and look at this robe then don't, don't I look good in this and uh, he's like I, I really don't want to do, do that Jesus knew that the one thing that most clearly unveiled the state of this rich young guy's sinful heart money. And it wasn't the actual wealth that was the problem. It was the condition of the man's heart that is revealed by his wealth. So for those of you who think, oh, I'm so glad, you know, I'm not rich, so I'm off the hook. That's not about me. No, it's probably something else for you. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I've known really godly rich people and really sinful rich people. I've known really godly poor people and really sinful poor people and a lot of folks in the middle. But if you want to know where your heart is, you, you want to know how to figure that out? This is so easy. Look at your bank account. What do you spend and what do you give? And if, if you, you know, this is going to hurt your feelings, but if you say, you know, I really love the Lord and everything, you, well, let's, let's open up that bank account and let's see how much you gave last year. Well, I didn't really give anything. Well, then stop talking. And that's what Jesus is saying. And see, you're feeling as offended as that guy was. He goes, what? You're telling me? Yeah, I'm telling you that if what you do and where you go with your resources doesn't reflect what you say, something's wrong about that, and you don't get it. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's a cool thing about that word. I know like the New Testament's written in Greek, and the word love in that circumstance would be agape, which is a word a lot of us are kind of familiar with. Uh, 
you've heard guys like me talk about it because it means to love with a sacrificial love. You know, it's like a giving love. It's a real unselfish kind of love. In Hebrew, there's not exactly an equivalent word, but there is a word uh, that means, and it's almost like a romantic word. It was used for romance, but it was also used for a love that expressed compassion and sympathy and tenderness. It's just a real sweet word, a real beautiful word. You know what I think? The New Testament's written in Greek and the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but Jesus and his disciples, they spoke in Aramaic. So I think when he's saying this out loud, he's speaking Aramaic, which had to be translated over into Greek. So in Aramaic, there is yet another word for the word love. And it's a, it's a word that means something so far beyond just an emotional feeling. It means how you act toward another person, how you express that. It's the, it's the word, it's the feeling, it's the emotion, but with legs on it. It carries you forward. And he said, how are you loving? How are you showing your neighbors that you really care? Hey, here's a way. If they're poor, duh, give them something. And it's going to cost you to do that. So that's, the, that's what he's talking about. And that exposes this guy's heart. And Jesus didn't just talk about it. He wasn't just, you know, he didn't just show up and say, I'm going to talk about love, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to talk about it. No, before he did that, he expressed it himself. Philippians 2 says that he gave up all of the wealth of heaven, all of the eternities and all of the resources and all of the glory, and he became a servant a servant that went so far as to die a criminal's death on a cross, the most excruciating, painful, and humiliating death anyone could imagine, and then taking all of our sins with him to the cross and absorbing that and dying for us. So you want to talk about loving your neighbor? Jesus said, here's how it's done. And he did. He emptied himself. He laid aside all the immensities of his glory. And he loved us at the cost of his own life. He loved us. And Jesus is looking at this guy and he's saying, I'm not asking you to do that. It's not going to be long before I'm crucified. I'm not asking you to go that far today. This is going to be easy. All you got to do is sell your stuff and give it to the poor people and let's go. It says, as the guy's listening to this, he gets really sad because he doesn't want to do it. Why? Because he doesn't care about poor people. He doesn't care about really loving people. He's just concerned about keeping the rules and being good enough so he can go to heaven. It's still about him. You know, if I were saved by my good works... It's kind of like when you earn your allowance or you work at a job and you make money or somehow you get money and then it's your money. You know, you feel like it's your money. Now, I grew up, I wasn't exactly poor, but my dad was really tough. I mean, I, and I, I kind of knew it at the time, uh, but I didn't really know. But then I had a job and I would make this money and I would fix up cars all the time. And I was always dumping so much money 
into the cars that I had to try to make them go faster and I'd buy this part or these wheels or do that to it, you know, to make it look better. And I can't tell you how many times my dad would say, you're just throwing your money away. How much did you spend on those wheels? How much did you spend on that? I go, oh, Dad, look, it comes, this is so cool, and this is going to go so fast. Why do you want to go fast? There's a speed limit. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> but uh, just in case I ever need to, um, I would be able to. You know, and to him, it was a waste. But here was, I would say back, well, it's my money. And he said that, well, it's my money. You see, if I saved myself, if I were so good that God had to put me on the roster and he had to take me into heaven, then there's a lot of wiggle room in there, and I would only do what is required of me. And if God ever asked me to go beyond that, I would say, hey, God, it's my salvation. I earned this. Hey, I'm I'm, (laughs) mm, that's as far as I'm going. No, but I've been saved by grace, and he's done everything for me, and I've done nothing. I've done zero. So God gets a blank check. <laughs> then he gets, God, and Jesus says, this is how you love. This is how we love each other. It's funny that in the original language in verse 22, when it says it made him sad, or my version says sor- he was sorrowful. That's a real intense word, but it's written as a participle, uh, which means the more Jesus talked as he's sharing this, it's dawning on the guy what he's talking about, and he didn't want to go in that direction. And so it's, it's a continuing thing. It's an I-N-G word. He's getting sadder and sadder. And you can just see him going, oh. He says, oh, this is awful. Until he gets to the point where he's like, he just walks away. <laughs> he just steps off the stage. He's like, I can't even talk about this anymore. You're so depressing. Note, good people find it harder to be saved sometimes than bad people because they're already so good, they don't really need to be saved. And I know you don't think that, you don't say it out loud, and you would never like, yeah, that's... um, You know how I told you a second ago that I kind of earned everything and had jobs and I did that? I had a work permit which back in the day, I don't think you guys still have this. I got my, I could get my learner's permit early because it was considered a hardship in my family, so I needed to drive. They needed another driver. And then I got a work permit where I got a high school like at 1 o'clock in the afternoon every day so I could go to work because it was, uh, it was like, well, he's got to contribute to the family. And my dad charged me room and board to live at home. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you love that instead of getting allowance from your parents, you had to pay your dad? I'm starting to get just upset of thinking about it all over again. Uh, and I was, so, I was just always broke and stuff. So uh, anyway, I'm paying my insurance. I'm buying my own glasses. I'm doing all of that. And you know what? That, the cool thing about that is that you become really resourceful so that when I get to this expensive college that I can't afford, I can always figure it out. When Kathy and I get married and we're so broke, we can figure it out because I'm very resourceful now and very self-reliant. And I know I'm not going to starve because I'm a survivor. Here's the downside of that. I get really prideful about it. I think I can do it. I'm self-reliant. I'm a self-made man. I can, I can, you know, I can, do, this, I can do this myself. 
And so I don't want any help. I don't want to rely on anybody else. I just, I can do it. I can do it. And there's this pride, this wicked pride that comes up in me that to this day I have to crucify. And I have to push down because I think I can do it. I can get it done. I don't need your help. I don't need anybody. I don't know. No, I'll just lock and load and I'll just go forward and I'll, I'll make it happen somehow. And Jesus is saying, that's your problem. It's not that you're rich. It's that you're so self-reliant. He said, you've got to throw all that away and trust me and let me be your treasure. Let me intervene because there's something wrong with your heart. Well, after this, when the guy walks away, we lose track of him. We don't know what happens, you know, he, he, he's, he's out of the story. But I'm just going to just do this, and this is so preachery. This is so something that you think, wait a minute. You'll go home and read this and go, wait a minute. He just made that up. Yeah, kind of. But in Luke 16, there's a story. What if, you know the rich guy who was so rich, and it says that every day he would leave his house and there was Lazarus? We had Dr. Uh, Cressley come and to, to speak during the missions conference. That was one of the best sermons. My goodness. And he, t- he talked about this particular passage. So I'm not even going to touch it because he was so awesome. But um, this rich guy would go past Lazarus every day who was poor. What if it's the same guy, just older? What if he's just gotten older and now he's like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, and he's just like leaving his house every day. And there's this poor guy. He still didn't care about the poor. He's gotten even more selfish that he doesn't even see the guy. He's just blind to him. But then, you know what happens? He dies. And he goes to hell because he never made this transition. He never got intermingled. He never understood what salvation really is. It's not about keeping the rules. It's not about being good. It's about giving my life away. Loving God through Jesus and then loving other people. What if that was him? James 4.14 says that our life is, it says it's just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I went to a concert the other night, and it's kind of old school. Only, only you people back here will remember, like, the Allman Brothers and uh, the songs of the 70s, that era of big classic rock bands where a song would last, like, uh, 70 or 80 minutes. You know? And they only do two songs every concert because that's all they've got time for because it just goes on and on. So they're playing one of these long songs, which is really, really good. But I'm watching. You know how behind the stage, we're going to get this pretty soon here, where we're going to make it come out of the baptistry. We're smoke, you know. It's always real smoky up on the stage, you know, and, and it looks really cool. But I watched that during, when they're in the middle of one of these songs, and, and that smoke comes out, and then it just, what happens to it? It just disappears. Guess what? That's your life. I know this is about to get really morbid and dark, and you're going to think, I love going to church because Dan's always so cheerful, and he says things to really lift us up, like, hey, you're going to die, and nobody's going to remember you. (laughs) And your life, you know what your life is? Smoke. That's it. You're nothing. You're gone. You're done, and nobody's going to remember you. Have a nice day. God bless. You know, it's going to be a great week. But I got to tell you, 
That's the truth. This is, um, this is this morning's, a section of this morning's paper. It's actually the section that you don't read until you get past your 50s. It's the obits, the obituaries. Mo, you've, I know Mo, yeah, he's already like, and I'm looking at all these people here. Some of them are really young. That's a little girl. She's, you know, just this little girl. And then there's a lot of older people. And then there's young people. And that always gets my attention. I always see their faces and think, oh, what happened? Sometimes they say and sometimes they don't. But in almost all of these, unless some of them are really, really short, which means they just didn't do a whole lot in their life. You know, and I think if somebody dies and like here's a guy and he's like his, he's 89 or 90 years old. And, um, and it lists stuff he did in high school, and I'm thinking, oh, dude, that's so sad. You peaked in high school, and, and now you're dying. And all they've got, 90 years later, all they can put in there is go, well, you know, he played basketball in high school. <laughs> that's the obituaries. And I know this is sad. You think, Dan, I don't even, I'm not even going to come next time because you're reading the obituaries. The church down the street, they're so happy. They don't talk about stuff like this. Well, maybe, but we should. Because your life is a mist. I want to show you something. Last year was a, was a sad year because we lost, you know, a lot of people. And some of those were celebrities. And there's famous people from politics and from, you know, sports and entertainment. I just picked out a few. I just picked out 16 people. I'm going to show you 16 famous people who made a tremendous difference in their field. I can show you all of them in 30 seconds. Your life is a mist. And after you've seen those, I'm going to ask Joe to come up and just to close us with a word of prayer because I, I, I want you to leave with a sense of, of this calling that you've got one shot, one chance. This is not a dress rehearsal. And you are so going to regret if you don't figure this out that we've got to love God through Jesus. We've got to love our neighbors as ourselves because you don't get another chance.